The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. If you have a Bible that is under the chairs, it's on page 575. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Let's read God's word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He should not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, it's a, uh, a blessing to be here, I, um, and I love this, actually. So, Randy, you can keep me on this schedule. Like, I have for the last, I don't know, good number of years been able to teach the Sunday after Thanksgiving. We do Shanksgiving, by the way. That's my last name. Uh, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here at Doxa, but uh, I hope uh, that you've had a great uh, entrance into the Christmas season. Um, the likelihood of that, though, statistically speaking, when I look around this room, is not very good. We live in America. Let's be real. Uh, you may have sat at the table of Thanksgiving looking across the table going, who invited them? Or, or how did they get back here this year? Or um, we'll make a note to do Thanksgiving differently next year. Or in a distant location. Or some type of plan to distance yourself from people. And it's interesting because... If that's not going on, don't worry, it will sometime in the future, or you're probably coming out of it. So um, I hope nonetheless um, we could stop for a little bit and uh, thank God for what we've got. Um, If you had no family, you might be appreciative for the family you have. Um, I usually read, um, and I've done this a couple times, I know it, Docs, if I'm not mistaken, the Washington's proclamation of a National Day of Thanksgiving and Prayer. Um, That's a great read to kind of reset what we're doing when we celebrate Thanksgiving. Having said that, we are starting an Advent series in uh, Doxa, four weeks of Christmas. Um, And and the the term is Advent. Um, It's a common observation with a lot of churches at the time. And it deals with two things. It's expectant waiting and preparation for both the celebration of Jesus' birth as well as the waiting and preparation for the return of Jesus at the second coming. Um, Advent comes simply from a word, a Latin word meaning coming. So we're going to spend the next four weeks, this week included, looking at that anticipation 
of um, this, the, the second coming, but not only that, but the celebration of Christ's birth. Um, and hopefully, the goal really is, is that uh, it will fortify our walk with the Lord. And hopefully, secondly, I think there are so many distractions that are, that are in the pike right now coming down the fairway that maybe we, we can sidestep some of those distractions to maintain just a sane walk with our Lord through the holiday season. And boy, if you can, for half of us, if you can pull that off, you're going to be ahead of the pack, uh, especially little kids running around or a lot of commitment or obligation with family. So with that, um, I want to I ask a question. I've got a theme this morning, and so I'm going to open up with an illustration. Im imagine you're furiously saving for your retirement and looking for a place to put your uh, money to find the best return on it. And to compound matters, you have failed to save in years past. Welcome to America, by the way. And you're trying to catch up for lost time. And further speculate, I come to you and I give you a stock. And I say, this stock in the future, on this particular date, is going to triple in value. Now, you'd say, Jonathan, you're a lawyer, not a stockbroker. This is a little flaky. And I'd say, trust me. But let's take it a step further. I'm going to give you, in addition to that, information concerning the weather of that particular morning. I'm going to give you what is going to be on the front page of the New York Times. And I'm going to tell you the location of the article as it appears on the front page of the New York Times. So you'll probably write me off as flaky. But imagine now that day comes and passes and that you look at the New York Times and you go, oh my goodness, this guy was on the money. Like to where the articles were placed on the front page. The weather, exactly as he said, and the stock triples. I think I'm a little flaky, but obviously something's going on here. And then I return to you and I say, on a particular date in the future, this, this other stock is going to quadruple. And to boot, I'll give you the weather of the day and the articles where they appear on the New York Times. Would that affect your economic behavior going forward? And let's say you've got 45 days notice. Would you go to the bank and tap your full loan potential from your home equity line? Would you max out every credit card advance for all the cash you can get there? Would you go and tap your family and say, loan me money, loan me business, employers, anybody to access uh, extra funds to make that investment? And so I asked this question in opening for us today. How, how would our actions change if we knew what the future held? Like, really, we know what the future holds. Would your actions change? How would our actions change if we knew what the future held? So just a question, and I'm going to weave this passage through this morning to kind of come back to that. So we're looking at Isaiah chapter 11 for this morning's Advent series. Um, I want to say this. If, if you have not studied Isaiah, I spent a year studying Isaiah, and it was the one book in the Bible that I knew the least about, yet blew me away the most. Um, all of what the disciples thought about when Christ came, 90% of it comes from the book of Isaiah. When they said, well, here's the prophesied Messiah, all the expectations they had on this reign of Christ came from Isaiah. You know, when Christ opened up his ministry, he opened up with a passage prophesying his coming from the book of Isaiah. And he says, he reads the passage and says, and that day's now. So it's an amazing book, and I'm going to butcher it this morning. I'm giving you a heads up, because if you take it out of context, 
some of what I'm going to reach the theme and the point for this morning in an Advent series, but if you studied the book of Isaiah, especially the two chapters leading up to this, it would change to some extent your perspective of what we're going to read about. It puts into context a bigger picture. So having given a disclaimer, I'm giving you just chapter 11 and actually just the first part of it. So we open up Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So, so we open up with some prophecy that has come true. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Uh, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And that's obviously referring to Christ in, the, in this lineage of, of Jesus Christ. So it's interesting here, though, why would, why would we be talking about Jesse, which was King David's father? You know, David was the one that became a king. And from Genesis, we know, Genesis 12 going forward, that Abraham, all nations would be blessed through Abraham. So why not say your father Abraham? Or even take it a step further where you hear in Jacob's 12 sons that Judah, the tribe of Judah, the lion of Judah will be the line, the kingly lineage. Or even just go to David. Say, David was a big man. He was a king. But instead he goes to, to, Jesse's, uh, to, to David's father, Jesse, who is basically a shepherd. And so I think the point here is why it comes up in that particular manner is in the context of the first and second coming of Christ. Christ came initially not as a king, but as a lowly servant. It's interesting when John the Baptist introduced Jesus, he looked over and said, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And so Christ's first coming was not, was not in a kingly authoritarian role. It, it came in, in, in a suffering servant that would give his life as a ransom for the sin of humanity. And so they reference back then the humble servant aspect of the lineage in the shepherd, the one who would care for his people. And there we have Jesse as the reference point, which obviously I think to me makes perfect sense. So we pick up in verse 2. I'm still one of the dinosaurs out here who, who does Sunday morning teaching off a of paper. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Another reference of fulfillment of prophecy there. It says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, uh, when Christ was baptized, it says this. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he, that's John the Baptist, saw the spirit of God descending, upon, descending like a dove and alighting on him, Jesus. And suddenly a voice from heaven came saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so this prophesied Messiah, we have some attributes of him. It says, uh, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Interestingly, now we have seven attributes. This is not an exhaustive list of all of the attributes of Christ. But if you're, you were to look for predominant attributes, they give just seven. And so we see this laundry list having a spirit, having the spirit of God. There's wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, spirit of knowledge, and a spirit of the fear of the Lord. And if you were to say, what, do, what are the essentials? We have the list here. 
Now, anytime there's seven attributes listed here, by the way, if you didn't pick up on that, anytime you see certain things with numbers, they always have biblical significance. I used to say most of the time. In my notes, I wrote most of the time. I'm like, no, 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 no. All of the time. All of the time. This is the counsel, of, the full counsel of God. If it's in his word, there's tremendous significance there. And so the number seven, what does it mean? Not, if you're not familiar with some Bible um, trivia, anytime you see the number seven, it denotes completion or the perfection of God. And in Christ, what do we see? The completion of God's will and the perfection through his son. So we know, obviously, again, this is pointing to the person of Christ without any real issue or potential for um, confusion. So we know this, and I'm going to give you a basic here, and I, and I think this is important when we talk about Jesus Christ. We as Christians believe that Jesus was God's anointed Messiah who came to take away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist has testified to. So what do we really believe as Christians? What's, what are the non-negotiables? Um, we, we believe um, that he was the prophesied Messiah in which the Old Testament foretold of. That he was born of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. That he lived a sinless life. That he was God's one and only son who took upon himself human flesh. The term is God incarnate. And that his purpose in life was fulfilled when he was falsely accused, tortured, and crucified on a cross. But it didn't end there. And if you're not familiar with Christianity, this is kind of where we leave the tracks, by the way. We leave the grid. Because on the, we believe that on the third day after he was dead and buried, actually in a tomb, that he rose from the dead, which displays in our, in our estimate the power of victory over death. And that if there is resurrection power in God's Son, that can be given to us. Very simple. But as Christians, as we approach Christmas, this is what we're supposed to celebrate. And obviously, if we really believe and embrace that, that's a big deal. And then the world comes along and hijacks the whole thing into all uh, parties and festivities and family. And, oh, you've got to have this. And there's got to be a turkey on the table. And you've got to go shopping. And it's got to be the madness of Black Friday. And you've got to get out of the gate. And there's sales. And, and all, of the, uh, all of the preoccupations supplant what we hold dear and profess as Christians. And the problem is, is if you're in a fish tank, you have to drink the water. And we, in an American culture, and I'll say this, I'll take it a step further, in our Protestant church culture, and Catholic for that matter as well, we're drinking the water. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. We believe that that death on the cross was the due and just punishment for the sin of humanity. And that those who now place their faith and trust in his work on the cross are, are not only forgiven of their sins past, but present and future, and are adopted into the family of God. That's what we profess and believe. So when we celebrate Christmas, we are acknowledging the salvation and redemption that we've received. And if you don't know Christ today, I, I, would, I would say, there's a, I've heard so many testimonies I would say pray. I would say be willing to receive him into your heart. I would say pray, pray that he would allow you to see who you are apart from his grace. Pray, pray that you could be redeemed. Pray that you would have hope. Pray that he would display and reveal himself to you. A lot of different ways. And if you'd pray that prayer, talk to us. Talk to somebody, Dale or Randy or myself. That's, that's important stuff. 
So I did actually in my overview, and I didn't give that to you this morning, very simple overview. We did, um, it's Isaiah chapter 11, 1 through 9. We've just covered verses 1 through 3a. It's he has come. And the second section, 3 through 9, is he shall come back. That's where we're going. Very simple, he has come and he shall come back. So in the opening of this section, I want to I give you Jesus' own words as to what he sought to accomplish in his first coming. And I think that's important because it kind of fills in a little bit of gaps here, puts some pieces in place. Because when you read some of this in, in the second part of Isaiah, we want to know when does this occur? And I, and I think through Jesus' own words, it'll help us put, pigeonhole it where it belongs. In Luke chapter 19, 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. To seek and save that which was lost. John, John 12, 47, Jesus said this, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge that person. Big language there. I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, first coming, by the way, but to save the world. Very simple. So if we look at his life, the, the, the first coming of Jesus, we, we've got a Savior who is coming to save the world. Yet we read here in verse 3 of Isaiah, he will, he will not judge by what he sees in his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. A lot of judgment going on. So that immediately cues us in that this is probably not reflecting what had happened during his first coming. The passage continues. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. That clearly did not take place in the first coming. He had some stern words to some people. Clearly the Pharisees received a little venom from his tongue. But this is not what we saw in his first coming. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So we're scratching our head going, when does this take place? But you got to keep reading. But the wolf will live with the lamb. This is interesting. This is one of the most, most quoted, misquoted passages in the Bible. Do you know what they usually say here? The lion will lay down with the... No, no, it's a misquote by the... Satan does a great job of misquoting. Truly, though, in fairness, by extension, lion will be laying down with the lamb. Let's, let's not get carried away. The, the wolf will live with the lamb. Uh, the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young, will, the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on, my holy, on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now clearly, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah was written 600, 700 years before Christ came, estimating that. Didn't do my homework, but I know it's in the ballpark. And so... With that, going forward, this has never happened. So when you combine the fact that he, Christ is doing some judgments here, or a prophet, or a great priest is doing some prophet here, and now all of a sudden we've got this community. You know, the last time, if you think about lion, lamb, wolf, and sheep, envision a tornado of claws, fur, and the rest there, okay? Clearly this is not happening now. Now we do have a reference for when it happened. And this is in the Garden of Eden. But it's not just limited to the Garden of Eden. 
The interesting thing here in Genesis, it is up until Noah left the ark that the earth existed in this state. Genesis 9, 1 through 3, we read that God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. Interesting. And then he says you can eat them, by the way. Noah's probably looking at you. You want me to eat that? Are you kidding me? He probably smelled and he goes, ah, I think that smells good. Yes, we'll have that for dinner. Clearly, clearly this has never taken place. And so we're talking about a future time. And in particular, it's interesting, the closing language. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so we, so we look to this future event. Now, there's some interesting stuff, um, and I'm going to give a really short snippet here. The, the leadership in Doxa, I know off the bat, on end-time theology is all over the map. Some would put this in what they call a messianic kingdom where Christ would return and is ruling the earth for a thousand year period. Some would say this is a new heavens, new earth. I'm leaving that alone. If you want to go dig into that, there are answers. And I think we each formulate an end time theology. And I joke a little bit, don't mistake this word too far, but I'm a pantheist. You know what that is? In the end, it all pans out. So with that, just remember that. It's all going to be good in the end. Run with that and work with me. I don't like the word pantheist. That, that sounds bad, though. That's heretical stuff. So, so, so what, is the, what is our takeaway during this season of Advent from this passage? And so I asked this question. I said, how would our actions change if we knew what the future held? How would our actions change if we knew what the future held? How would our actions change with the information I gave you about the stock that was going to quadruple in the future? Would you sit there and just keep sleeping in and say, well, you know, I'll probably do okay with my economics anyway. I don't need to invest that money. How, how would your actions change if you really believed that? And there was really a burden and a need. And you could receive economic freedom from following some directions where the past tells you you can unequivocally rely upon what I have to say. How much more so is the news about Christ's return going to affect us and everyone we love. How much more so is the news about Christ's return going to affect us and everyone we love? See, Christ already came and walked the earth. Nobody's going to argue that. Secular, godless, historically Christ was on the map. And we know his genealogy is prophesied through the Old Testament. Not only did he come from Jesse, but he, but he was in the lineage of Abraham of the, of the kingly lineage of Judah and would flow from the direct lineage of King David. We were told in advance, I have scriptures to back up everything I'm about to tell you if you're new to Christianity. We were told in advance he would be born in Bethlehem. We were told in advance he would be born of a virgin. We were told in advance a massacre would take place in his hometown where he's born. We were told in advance he would spend a season in Egypt. We were told in advance he would be raised in Nazareth. We were told in advance of his public ministry and who would accept and who would reject his words. We were told in advance the details of the miracles that he would perform. We were told in advance that he would be betrayed. 
We were told in advance that he would be falsely accused. We were told in advance that he would, no, he would neither defend himself and remain silent before his accusers. We were told in advance that he would be spit upon and struck. We were told in advance in the detail of his death not a bone would be broken, yet his side would be pierced. We were told in advance that he would be crucified with common criminals. We were told in advance that the soldiers would gamble or draw lots over his clothing. And I'm just getting started. The statistical probabilities of those prophecies coming true, knowing the various authors over the time period in which they were given, just the, the eight major prophecies of Christ, would be the equivalent of this, taking a silver dollar, putting an X on it, and then filling the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, blindfolding a man, putting him in a car, saying, drive as far as you want, reach out, and the first silver dollar I'd like you to pick would be the one with the X on it, and that's what happens. The statistical probabilities aren't statistical probabilities. There are foreordained truths that could come true in no other way other than by the word of God. And that brings us to my opening question. How would our actions change if we knew what the future held? See, Advent is a season of preparation. But maybe for us, Christians, it's more simply a reminder. See, we're not to live a particular season as Christians. We're to live our lives in a particular way. We're to anticipate Christ returning. So as we head into the Christmas season, how will the knowledge of his return change how we're living? It's just a fair question. I'm going to give you what is going to seem almost novel and trite ideas. Because you've heard them all before. You know, it's interesting. I saw Mr. Rogers over the um, Thanksgiving weekend. And it, it really, it was a fantastic movie in this. If you watched the first 15 minutes, you would have said, it's a C-rated movie put on by somebody who wants to show it at Sundance Film Festival. You know the old Mr. Rogers, how you saw the little fake plane go down the runway and then it lifts off and kind of juts up into the air? That's how they denoted travel, even in the current Mr. Rogers. It was great, you know? So, but what, what struck me is there was a statement that just rang my bell. They said when you were in his presence, he always treated you like you were the most important person in the world. And it just stuck. It just kind of hung in the air. Because that's not how I act. What are some things we can do about this season to act like he's going to return? The first thing, and I think it's really the biggest, although... Maybe some of us have different areas we need to work on. Pray a simple prayer that God would show us how truly lost the lost are. Prayer that, we, that God would show us how truly lost the lost are. You want to get morbid? Pray that God would let you see what, he, what eternity in hell looks like. I don't want to go there. It's Christmas. But just maybe a simple thought. What is the loss? What is it? Think back. Where were we in our sin and hopelessness? 
You know, I get it when I look at the world today, the madness spiral of justice, consumption, more, bigger, better, lights, action, cameras, you know, roll it and keep it going loud and high def. You know, I get it. That's rational to me. How about this? How about simply speaking words of kindness to every stranger we, we, we meet? Whether it's a compliment or a word of encouragement or inspiration. I wish I could have given this, this, this suggestion before Black Friday. Next year, go out on Black Friday with one goal, not to buy a thing, but to make the most miserable person's life better you can encounter. Oh, I see you've got 47 things in the checkout aisle of only 10 things. Could I help carry them for you? Something like ambush humanity. You know, go out of your way to bless somebody. Fill your pocket with chocolate. Uh, you got to be careful with filling your pocket with chocolates. I can do this at community group and hand them out to all the little kids. The parents hate you for that, but it makes me feel really good. I enjoy that. Intentionally ambush people over Black Friday with love, with kindness. Bring bottled water somewhere. Show up somewhere and do something that displays the kindness we receive from Christ as displayed on the cross. That's not real hard. I got a theory about this. You'll probably be the best, be the best Black Friday you've ever had. When my kids were little, I would always do this. Here's another parenting tip. I would give my kids 50 bucks on Thanksgiving and say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find another adult, not me, and I want you to do to bless somebody with this money. But I want you to pray about it before you go out and see what you can do to bless somebody. And I want to hear what you did with the money on Christmas morning. You know, talk about highlights. Kids pulled their money one time and put a cookout at Chapin Park. And when other people found out about what was going on, they started filling bags and knapsacks with socks and toiletries and all of this stuff. And there was this huge, it wound up being like 20 people showing up at Chapin Park with this whole scene going on. I knew nothing about it until Christmas morning. There's joy. Why do I stand here 20 years later and remember that as a spectacular Christmas morning? Because it has lasting significance. Will we allow, oh, a couple other things. I'm going to say this, and I think it really needs to be said. The Christmas season, how about us minding our own business? We can do the, what the is it the Hippocratic Oath by the doctors? First, do no harm. And I, and I say this because sometimes we open our mouth and just destroy. We, we can't even get out of the starting gate. You get to give your opinion this holiday season if asked. How's that? If not asked, you do not get to give it. Boy, that, that works year-round, by the way. It's really nice. Premeditate on acts of kindness. Go somewhere intentionally with the mindset, I'm going to bless somebody. Take an extra $20 bill and put it in a card and hand it to the checkout girl when you leave and say, God bless you, Merry Christmas. I don't care if it's five bucks and let your kid give it to him. You want to talk about blessing people? You want to talk about just displaying the kindness and the goodness and the love of Christ. Premeditate on acts of kindness. Pray to love somebody well who's been a jerk to you for the past year. Very simple. Just God love Take, get rid of this bitterness in my heart toward them and just let me love on them well. 
I would say this, if, if you want to get off the ground, start every day in the Word and on your knees before the Lord. Pray with, and you're going to hear this every time I preach, I think I say this, start praying with your spouse daily, out loud, if you're not doing it already. You want to have a great Christmas? Try that for starters. You know, I'm, I'm Friday with my daughter, my 18-year-old daughter, and I'm in a checkout line at Sears, and the girl strikes up a conversation. And I just want to check out. I just want you to give me what I'm buying and leave. And my daughter responds, oof, a dagger into the heart. Like, you missed it, idiot. You missed it again. You have your 18-year-old daughter just being kind. And pray that God would show you how to do it this year. Pray that God would have somebody. You know, sometimes some of us need an example. And for some of us like me, they use their 18-year-old daughter to show you how it's done. Very simple. Very simple. Uh, my wife read a text this morning from somebody. Really interesting. Face social media. It says, when I get stressed, feel pressured, hurried, or harried over Christmas season, it's because I've taken my eyes off of Jesus. I've taken my, excuse me, I've taken my eyes, mind, and heart off of the true celebration, which is the birth of Jesus and the celebration uh, that he came. Thanks, honey. You are... Hot. Okay. So, with that, with that, is anything going to change this Christmas? It's a fair question. And maybe as we go into this season, instead of looking for some downtime, a little extra time with family and friends, maybe a little bit of release from the worry and the madness of life and a burden from the daily grind. Maybe we can use that time wisely knowing there's a day in the future where we find that rest. And that's the truth because that day's coming. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this morning, for your kindness, really simply for your kindness that uh, there are so many people that have been good to me. Um, Lord, I pray that you'll allow us, uh, allow us to display that kindness. Again, that doesn't come from our hearts, but it comes from you. And that um, just this morning would be a reset for us about what's important and what's not. Um, give us the ability to, um, to simply see the things of eternal significance, uh, to see the people we encounter um, and those who are lost especially to bring them some hope and kindness this year. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.